Welcome to this first incision mini-series, Junior Doctor Foundations. I'm your host, Lizzie Kennedy, a junior doctor based in Exeter, and you're listening to the third episode in this new six-part series on how to thrive as a junior doctor living and working in digital Babylon. Here to navigate this topic with me today, I've got two guest speakers, junior doctors Ben Chang and Sally Barker. Hi. Hello. It's been great getting to know you both, and I'm really excited to hear more from you. Sally and Ben, you've actually been friends for quite a while now. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about yourselves? Yeah, sure. Maybe first. (laughs) My name's Sally. I'm an FT working in London, currently on a powder care job. Yeah, I got to know Ben when we were both doing the CMF speakers track, which was 2019 then? Pre-COVID? It was pre-COVID, yes. I can't, it all kind of blurs into one, doesn't it? (laughs) Sally, I hear that you are currently running quite a popular medical podcast called A to Easy. (laughs) It was a sort of medical student project that I did with a few friends. And yeah, we released little episodes on different clinical conditions, advice on being an F1, how to answer a bleep, that kind of thing. And it's kind of taken off and it's something I really enjoy. But I've never been a guest on a podcast before. So this, this is new for me. And Ben, what do you do for a living? So I am an A&E trainee. I'm one of those nutters, um, currently working in central London. Um, and yes, as, as I said, I did the speaker's track a few years ago. And if ED is not busy enough as it is, I'm excited to hear you've actually also written a book that's coming out mm. in May of this year, Ben. That's called Christ and the Culture Wars, Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics, which is perfect for today, really, because we're actually going to take a focused look at the topic of culture. How do we navigate culture and answer questions like, how should I live? So Ben, I'd love to hear more about why do you think as Christians we should engage with culture? Yeah, and then this is part of the reason why I did write that book, Christ and the Culture Wars, because I do passionately believe that Christians should engage with culture. If there's one person who I've been most influenced by on this issue, it would be John Stott, uh, the theologian and pastor, former rector of All Souls Langham Place, um, who wrote a lot about cultural engagement. One of my favourite comments of his was in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, particularly uh, the verse that speaks of being salt of the earth. So in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's a famous verse that talks about Christians being salt. Um, Salt was a preservative. It preserved meat. And this is what John Stott wrote in his commentary, which I find I, I find amazing. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat from going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So when meat goes bad, you don't blame the meat, you blame the salt or the lack of it. And so if our world and our culture is not going in a way we approve of as Christians, whether it be the world of identity politics or social media or medicine or politics or whatever, we shouldn't blame our culture. We should blame the lack of Christian presence in our culture. And I find that very challenging and very inspiring that we as Christians are called to be in our culture, deeply embedded in our culture, and 
changing it, changing it for Jesus to make it better for his glory. As a kind of starter for six, I, I find that very helpful when we think about why we should engage with culture as Christians. That is really challenging. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ben. I guess the reason we started doing this series in the first place is after reading a book called Faith for Exiles, and that's based on research from North America where they interviewed 50,000 young adults. Kind of came out of that this conclusion that our culture at the moment is very chaotic, it's very hostile, and they call it digital Babylon. That's to say that our culture in the UK today is no longer monotheistic, where faith is at the centre of society, like it was in Old Testament Jerusalem. We've got a culture which is much more like 6th century Babylon, where the prophet Daniel lived. It's fast-paced, it's chaotic, pagan, but also spiritual, and faith is just completely pushed to the margins of that. Often as Christians, it can feel like we're living as exiles in that culture and we're trying to put God at the centre of our lives in a culture where everything is pulling us away from him. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how do you think, Ben, that we can engage with culture as Christians when it's when it's so fast-paced and feels quite anti-faith at times? In the opening um, paragraph of my book, um, I look at Billy Graham coming to the UK in the in the 50s. They touched down... Um, in the UK and packed out Harangay Arena night after night. Thousands of people came uh, to hear Billy Graham and thousands committed to following Jesus to repentance and then went on to shape and change the church. And, and many, many of these, I think there's good reason to believe, were genuine conversions. There was a real spiritual hunger. But now things are so different. And I think if Billy Graham himself came back today, he would not get the same response. We live in a very different world. People use the word post-Christian to describe our culture, and I think that's probably fair. Uh, we live in a, a country that feels like it's done Christianity and is ready to move on. They've done that. They bought the T-shirt. Let's let's move on to to bigger, more modern things. In terms of how we should engage with culture, John Stott also wrote a lot about this. Um, I'm going to see if this can be the last time I quote John Stott uh, in this <laughs> podcast. I, I don't have much hope, uh, but oh well. So in his book, The Contemporary Christian, John Stott basically puts forward one of his big pioneering ideas, which he termed double listening. So let, let me just um, read you a little bit from The Contemporary Christian. Uh, so this is what John Stott writes. How can we develop a Christian mind, which is both shaped by the truths of historic biblical Christianity and acquainted with the realities of the contemporary world. We are called to double listening, listening to both the word and the world. We listen to the word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it and resolved to believe and obey what we come to understand. We listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, and resolve not necessarily to obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. Um, and then later on in the book, uh, John Stott has this image of a bridge. So on one side of the bridge, you have uh, the world of the Bible with its wars and conquests and agricultural economies and empires. And then the other side of the bridge, you have the modern world of medicine and technology and social media and cost of living crisis and international football. And in order to live faithfully for Christ in the modern world, John Stott says we need to build a bridge from the word to the world. And the way that you build a strong bridge is by drilling down deep on both sides. So we need to listen carefully to the word and study it humbly, reverently, taking it as authority in our life and the ultimate story into which our story fits. We need to study the Bible. 
But we also need to listen carefully to our world, both the world at large and also our individual worlds. In our case, our worlds of medicine and the NHS and medical ethics. And it is only when we have listened both carefully to the word and the world that we can then start building a bridge from one to the other. That is a great metaphor. I haven't heard that one before. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. Sally, is there anything you'd like to chip in with? Yeah, I mean, it's so great having Ben as a friend because when you meet up with him for coffee, he just says stuff like that and you're like, your mind is just blown. And it, very and few of my ideas are original. <laughs> <laughs> they're all they're all copied. They're all plagiarized. I do no, believe I in the spiritual you, gift of plagiarism. Yeah, you do <laughs> reference it though, so it's okay. And I think they are just such, yeah, amazing, amazing kind of analogies intentionally drilling down on both sides but I do sometimes kind of think gosh like how how do I actually do that I think especially as an F1 doing those really crazy shifts you do at the beginning and and not not feeling like you were really prepared for it at medical school and, and figuring a whole load of life out alongside I think it's so easy to prioritize one over the other or just or not really even get to grips with with either side like I think a lot of my F1 was just trying to kind of make it through the day uh, potentially like read a bit of the bible in the morning and then kind of get back home and and feel so anxious and so like stressed out from my day that all I wanted to do was just watch some escapism on Netflix like I didn't I didn't want to critically appraise it and I didn't want to look at the news and I didn't really want to engage with wider culture at all I wanted to very much stick my head in the sand and you know not not be salt at all really and I think that's why in my F2, I've been lucky with my jobs and maybe had a bit more time than a lot of other foundation doctors do. But I have kind of woken up to the fact that there's so much going on outside of our little bubbles of our own our own rotors and our own day-to-days. Like just look at how the NHS is at the moment, all of the different issues that it's facing and, and all of the kind of media attention it's getting and, and how then people look at us knowing that we work for the NHS and how our families interact with us knowing that we work for the NHS. Like no matter how hard I, I want to avoid putting any intentional effort in, it's kind of being, I feel like thrust upon us now. And, and I think, you know, that that's a wake up call and that needs to be listened to. And I think, yeah, reading Faith for Exiles and, and yeah, knowing that you were doing this podcast series, Lizzie, was is really helpful as a way to maybe structure those feelings that I was getting and yeah, kind of try and put some things in place and then kind of really talk to God about how are we meant to operate in this crazy, chaotic world? How are we meant to both live for you, but be in the world at the same time and build that bridge? Yeah, and you're so right. I mean, particularly when you start in F1 and seasons and training when you've just moved to a new place or seasons and training when you're just reaching a new level and kind of moving up to the next grade it is just it is really difficult to kind of feel like you're intentionally drilling down on both sides and kind of engaging with culture and engaging with the Christian faith and that's a really tricky balance I guess I'm just thinking that at those times it's just so helpful to prioritize Christian community and and kind of having people around you to cheer you on in that because there there will be seasons where it is very hard and you just need to keep reading God's word as much as you can in those kind of little bite-sized chunks. A lot of it's just keeping going and embracing the different seasons. And do you have any particular advice for colleagues who are in training? It, you know, it's difficult at the moment. It's on the news every day. How how do you keep drilling down on both sides when you're in that kind of situation? I mean, I, I don't pretend this is easy and I certainly don't pretend that uh, I do this well or that I'm in any way some uh, some expert on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that actually as Christian medics, we are in a very privileged position uh, to be able to start from a kind of higher baseline when it comes to listening to the world. 
So this is the third mention of Don Stott now. But uh, <laughs> apparently, um, <laughs> I could bingo with my with, with the. <laughs> The monologues that I do. John Stott, so he trained as a theologian. He didn't have a secular job, went straight from Bible college into to working for the church. And one of the things he had to do, or that he chose to do, was to regularly get people in his church together to meet up with him as a group with the primary purpose, not of him teaching them, but them teaching him about the world, their work and their research and their their cultures and all the stuff that's happening in the secular world. Because he had to very intentionally seek those people out from within his community in order to listen to them so he could then preach to them and teach them and, and, and disciple them. We're in the world already. We're, we are in the NHS. We are, you know, we're, we're in the coffee rooms. We're having those chats about the health secretary or about the latest drug or about star shortages or about things in the news. Like we, these conversations happen all the time in the medical community. And so in a sense, we're actually in a very good position to listen to the world. And certainly if someone brings up conversations in the, the coffee room or the mess that I don't know much about, I'm usually the first to go tell me more. And, and, and it might be that I disagree, but we should be willing to listen, listen to people who we agree with and disagree with. And I think actually medics are, are very good at keeping up to date with current affairs. The conversations in my um, coffee room at the moment in the last few weeks have ranged from like Harry and Meghan to kind of cost of living crisis to Keir Starmer's latest thing that he said. Medics, I think, generally are quite good at keeping up to date with current affairs. And I think it's probably we're intellectually curious and, and we need to keep up to date for our jobs. And so just being in part of this community is actually quite a high baseline to start from. So I don't think we should um, beat ourselves up that we're not reading a book a week and we're not massively familiar with the latest you know, philosophical advancement in, I don't know, vital ethics or whatever. Just being in the world amongst medics, amongst people who disagree with us, amongst the secular community, I think is is a good place to start. Yeah, that is a really helpful way of thinking about it all, actually. I think I'm just reflecting, I guess, in terms of how culture is at the moment, particularly in the fact that it's such a busy, bustling culture. Even when we think of us as just humans, not doctors, there's just so much choice in the world around us and it can feel quite overwhelming at times. And I guess what I found interesting reading this Faith for Exiles book is this suggestion that perhaps millennials and Gen Z have been brought up to believe that we are limitless almost. And then I think as medics, there's a kind of an added layer on top of that and that we're doctors and often friends and families, you know, try to be supportive, but they have a lot of expectations and we have a lot of expectations of ourselves and we can pick and choose so many different options and specialties. The Faith for Exiles book suggests that perhaps the fact that we are facing a culture like that with so much choice is quite anxiety inducing and research is suggesting that anxiety is on the rise amongst Gen Z. I guess I, I personally found that that research resonated with me a bit, this kind of idea of because we're facing so much overwhelming choice all the time, it can often very easily leave you with a sense of anxiety. Go for it, Sally. <laughs> Help me formulate what I'm trying to say. <laughs> As I say, like Lizzie, yeah, I think that really resonates with me as well. And actually, I, I kind of was hoping to mention this book I've been reading lately that helped me put that into words. I don't know if you've heard of it. So it's called A Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers. The full title is How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. And I I haven't read it all, so I can't like vouch for all of it um, about a third of the way through. But I suppose it's a book that's aimed at Christian leaders in a post-COVID world. So it's really it was produced very recently, talks about this transition zone where we're in, talks a little bit about 
how culture is changing and in a post-Christian world that we're in. And it really interestingly, a little bit like Faith for Exiles, links some of the like generalized anxiety in the population. And I guess by that, we're not talking about medically diagnosed anxiety, but this sort of low-level chaos that we all are now living in. And uh, Mark Sayers kind of makes the point that previously, most people in, in the country would have had a faith, and that would have been their external source of comfort and guidance and something to look to in times like this. And then slowly, that's maybe been replaced with centralized governments and the monarchy and bigger structures like the NHS that absorbed anxiety that people look to for centralized knowledge and guidance and a kind of force, if you like, that would help overcome challenges on their behalf without them having to kind of worry about it too much. But now, even those structures for many people don't really exist in their brains as something they can rely on or that they can put their worries to, especially as we've seen recently with the kind of really turbulent times that, that politics has faced and then institutions like the NHS have faced. And he makes the point that that is contributing to this kind of feelings that people are having about living in the culture that we do. And I, I kind of, I was I was reflecting on that and then I was listening to the most recent episode of your junior doctor series, um, foundation series, which was with Glyn and, and John, Glyn Harrison and John Greenall. And I loved that part where Glyn was kind of saying, you know, the world is telling us that we should look inside ourselves in these times and find our own answers and you do you and, and be true to yourself. But actually, like what helped me in that transition point of thinking, how am I going to be a bridge and how am I going to draw down both sides? Is just remembering we we are so lucky. We have such an opportunity because we don't need to look inside ourselves. Like we have the knowledge that we have a creator and that he loves us and unconditionally and he is our source of guidance and of comfort and of and of wisdom. I know that that sounds really obvious and that's like a cornerstone of the Christian faith, but I, I found that really quick and easy to forget in F1. And then, you know, quick and easy to forget when I open my news app and, and kind of see everything that's going on in the world. And actually then you remember it, it's okay because I am a child of God and actually he's the one I should be looking to in times like this. And And then I remember that lots of people in the UK don't have that you know, they don't know God. And that's when it becomes less of a burden of, oh, I've got to drill down on both sides. And that's my responsibility. And I'm not really drilling down in the cultural engagement side very well to being like, oh, actually, it's such an opportunity to be this bridge and to, to link the two and to, and to share with people I know and people I love. This is why we can have confidence and, and trust in eternity, because we know God. One thing that's helped me go from that thought process and that prayer process into living it out daily is for me being, I suppose, intentional with social media, especially in, in the mornings, <laughs> because what I found I was doing was setting an alarm on my phone and waking up with my alarm on my phone and then probably allocating a specific amount of time to open a Bible and to pray, but actually opening the news app on my phone and maybe opening Twitter on my phone and maybe opening a social media app on my phone and then, you know, rushing for work and never getting there and just having all of this, yeah, anxiety about the state of the world instead. And so I have a really close friend called Liz and we went to medical school together and we were in CMF at medical school together. And we did a challenge during the pandemic of learning Bible passages via voice note, which sounds really clunky, but actually work quite well because you kind of get this little like chat and a little update and maybe a prayer request. And then each day we would add on another verse onto a set passage. So we over the pandemic, we did the whole of Romans 8, for example. So it was quite a long period of voice noting, but it was such a great passage to learn. 
and it kind of died down a little bit in our final year of medical school but actually in F1 I was like I think I really need this I need something in the morning that I have someone's holding me accountable to and that will point me to God and it also I think then overflowed if you like because it wasn't just in the morning that I was reading this passage and trying to memorize it and updating Liz about how my day was going and listening to her voice note back and all being like very reciprocal but then it also gave me something to do in the lift at work or when I was running specimens to the lab or waiting in the coffee queue or just you know in those tiny gaps we get on the wards as a junior doctor where your brain is just looking for any possible escapism and actually opening the bible app which I hadn't really ever used before to be honest rather than opening beauty news or twitter or instagram you know, it just changed my day because every couple of hours I was really briefly dipping in and out of scripture. And it started off as, yeah, a bit of a, I guess, a competitive accountability thing, like he was memorizing it better or more quickly. But I'm so grateful for it now because it's really changed how I think I do interact with my phone just by having that one other person involved in my phone use. That was quite a long monologue. So yeah, that's that's it. No, thank you so much for sharing that. That's very helpful. I do actually remember halfway through F1, a good friend giving me a piece of advice, which was just buy an old fashioned alarm clock. And that for me was a really helpful way of just meaning that the first thing I picked up in the day wasn't my phone. And there isn't one right way to do anything. But I guess, I mean, personally, yeah, I find my phone very distracting. And then it's very easy to miss out on those opportunities to read God's word or pray when we're constantly being pulled in a hundred different directions. I think with social media, I think this is a topic that is probably worth pressing into a little bit for thinking about cultural mm-hmm. engagement, because social media is is massively changing the world in ways I think we're only beginning to understand now. And so this is, a very, I think, a very good example of the need for double listening. Social media has changed pretty much everything in life. It's changed how we view ourselves, how we view the world. It's changed our mental health. It's changed our kind of addictions. It's changed the way we do church. We do friendship. We do relationships. It's changed our politics. It's changed changed so much. It's changed how we propagate truth, how we view the world. It's changed how conspiracy theories are, uh, are, are received. It's changed how political movements are founded. There's so much that social media has completely transformed in the world. And I think we Christians, when they approach social media as a topic, often have two approaches that I think are one of two approaches that I think are overly simplistic. Either Christians say, oh, social media, it's all bad. The solution is to do less of it. <laughs> I'm maybe being a bit harsh. But, no, I was just uh, going to say, bit, Ben, yeah. I feel like this is how I approach social media. So I'm like really <laughs> listening right now because that's me. That's yeah. me 100%. <laughs> um, so I recently read a book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And it basically is that it's, your phone is changing you and it is bad. Um, <laughs> or there's the other approach that Christians often have, which is to say social media is a tool. It's a neutral tool like a knife and you can use it for good or bad. So a book that puts forward that, and albeit this was a good few years ago now, but Virtually Human by Pete Nicholas and Ed Brooks basically made this argument that social media is a neutral tool. You can use it for good or bad. And I think both of those views are just way too overly simplistic because they fail to acknowledge that social media isn't this bad malevolent force or this neutral tool, but it's this whole strata of reality. And if we're going to approach this new strata of reality, we need to do our listening. We need to listen carefully to the world of dating apps. 
or the world of conspiracy theories online, or the world of um, the dark web, or, or the world of surveillance capitalism, or, or whatever. And it's only when we start listening carefully to that, then we can then start applying the Bible to it. So uh, to take your example, Sally, of its addictiveness, you know, I find that I start scrolling online before I even get out of bed. I mean, it's, it's mad to think that we would do something before we get out of bed other than get out of bed um, yeah, I, I think like anyway four hours a day you know mm. like my phone usage is just embarrassing and it's um, all scrolling and I, I think it's worth trying to think about why and, and how and, and what is it about our phones that make them so addictive that we reach for them before we've even stepped out of bed and put our dressing gown on john wyatt's book the robot will see you now one of the chapter authors mentioned this driving principle behind the social media companies is this race to the bottom of the brainstem. <laughs> so it's the idea that they're trying to basically find the most addictive thing and control the brain in the most powerful way possible. We need to be aware of that before we then start thinking about, okay, so if that's what the world is that we live in, how can we build a bridge from the Bible, what the Bible says about ourselves and our minds and our desires and then how can we build a bridge between the two? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful approach to it. I mean, technology is changing so much that it would be impossible, I guess, as a church to have a particular stance on something, because by the time they've kind of organised that and come together, that's going to change. So it does feel like the responsibility, I guess, is with us as individuals to be double listening and kind of observing and reflecting and then, you know, taking that to God's word and, and processing it through that lens. Yeah, and, and this needs to be a contemporaneous thing. We need to do mm. this live. We need to do this day to day. We yeah. need to listen to what's happening, what's happening to us, what's happening to the world. And that yeah. is the challenge, isn't it? Is doing it intentionally and pretty much continuously. Because exactly as you said, Lizzie, like the best church, the best will in the world and the most up-to-date staff team can't possibly every week dedicate the time required to teach and to kind of do biblical exposition on real current affairs, especially when you consider even how much of it flows into our brains all the time. Probably 90% of it's not important, but the point is, is that we get these constant streams, right, of mm. news, whether that's news of good quality or poor quality. And this is, I think, where Christian medics can play a really important role in the church. So we as Christian medics are called to be Christians in the medical world and being salt and light in the world. But I do also think we're called to be medics in the church. And so you're right, your church ministers can't stay up to date with every new advancement, and you know, including in medicine, you know, the latest ethical dispute or legal issue or whatever. And therefore, I think there is a responsibility for medics in the church to take the lead on these issues, you know, whether it be on gender or contraception or reproductive technologies, or even kind of broader stuff around things like science and suffering. And I, I was um, speaking to a, a vicar friend of mine about transgenderism, and I asked him a question, a specific question about a particular policy. And he answered to words of the effect of, we're kind of just waiting for the Christian doctors to tell us what to do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, hang on no a minute, pressure. that's me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a responsibility uh, to take the lead on these uh, on these issues where we do have expertise, medical knowledge inherent to our job, our profession. The question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to help the church think through these issues, whether they be the complex ethical issues around gender, or reproductive technology or end of life, whether it be political stuff around a &E wait times or health policies, or whether it be on the day-to-day -day life and what does it mean to be sick? What does it mean to trust God in suffering? What does it mean to die well? 
There's so many issues where we can take the lead in these things. That is a, that's a very challenging thought. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Yeah, I think I've been probably quite humbled since being a doctor of just perhaps how kind of vulnerable I think we can be at times. I think we've talked about some of the, I guess, the quite addictive nature of technology, even just Instagram, social media, before we even talk about other things. And I guess I've had to, like you say, Sally, become more accountable to close friends about phone use because I think we're quite isolated. It's temptation without even realising it's temptation. Before you've even got home scrolling on my phone and then I'm home and I'm watching Netflix and then there's almost like no thought involved whatsoever. It's like you say, Ben, just purely brainstem-like activity. And it does it does feel like it takes a monumental effort to engage with others and be encouraged by them. And also just prayer for, I think, wisdom. Wisdom to both see when I'm kind of getting into those patterns of behaviour, like actually just notice it initially, as well as wisdom to know, okay, well, you know, what do I do about it? How could I approach this in a wiser way? Yeah. And I think on the issue of addiction and temptation, I think this is where the other side of double listening becomes not just very helpful, but essential. If we acknowledge that technology is so tempting, and so addictive, I think we need to go back to the Bible and understand what the Bible says about addiction and temptation and overcoming it. That we are slaves to sin without Christ, that our hearts are sinful, they're corrupted. It is only by Christ that we can be set free. And then as saved sinners, we then have something to look at, to grasp, to hold on to that can fulfill our desires far more than technology or anything else that is uh, seeking our attention. You know, what is it about technology that makes it so addictive? Is it the affirmation? Well, Jesus says, I adopted you at great price for myself freely to be part of my family. Is it the fact that it's constant stimulation, that it's never static, it's never dead, it's alive, it's always with us? Well, the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active, and that social media is not compared to that. What is it about social media that is addictive, that is tempting? And how is Jesus better? How can Jesus fulfill our desires that social media taps into? I think that is where we can start to come to a come to some helpful points as to how we approach the addictiveness of social media. Yeah, I think that's so helpful because I feel like, yeah, over the course of our conversation already, we've gone from like really kind of big ideas about being Christian medics in the church and engaging with really big cultural themes to how do we literally manage day to day to be spiritually healthy? And then I want to ask, I'm so wary that we're just chucking in another book reference. Have you read Live No Lies by John Mark Comer? No, I haven't. Oh, fine. Lizzie, have you? <laughs> I have not. I've read some of his other books, so I'm a bit of a fan, but I haven't read that one yet. I have, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read Garden City. Okay, no, it's funny, Ben, because I think you've just kind of summed up his latest book, which is Live No Lies, which is really interesting. And he kind of almost has like exercises in that book to recognise lies that culture are kind of shouting at us or we might have like absorbed from other experiences in our lives. And he recommends kind of making your own manual of, of scripture to come back at those lies. Maybe when you're kind of not in a good state to bring them to mind yourself, you've got your, <laughs> you've got your list ready about how loved we are and how we are forgiven and what our, our purpose is in life as children of God and I guess can we use that framework kind of all, all the way up from looking at our own personal habits and how we interact with technology and yeah like Netflix and, and all these other things on a really personal level to looking at how things are presented through the media and these yeah bigger themes of medical ethics like what is the message that is being said here and can we recognize that as truth from a Christian worldview or is it a lie and if it's a lie what are we combating it with from what we know to be the truth and mm. I don't know if that's something that can kind of apply in some way at, at every level. Mm. 
And I think just just on that last point, so Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, uh, speaks of the need to preach to ourselves, and particularly in the context of depression, spiritual depression. And I think that is really helpful. Uh, it's one thing to know your Bible. It's one thing to know Romans 8. It's another thing to preach it to yourself on a daily basis which is what the psalmists declare that they do. And it is what we are called to do. And I think part of that double listening is to not only read the Bible and know it, but then to be able to preach it to ourselves, particularly in those moments where we feel the weight of the voices of our culture bearing down on us in a way that is pulling us away from Christ. That's so funny that you kind of mentioned preaching Romans 8 to yourself every day because my home group recently did a Freedom in Christ course and kind of encouraged you to pick an area where you're particularly struggling and essentially preach, you know, create a list of Bible verses that you read to yourself every morning, every evening to kind of just refresh that truth in your mind. And so for me, it was a, you know, aspect of identity, but you can do it basically on anything, whether it's your attitudes about how you're embracing technology, you know, attitudes about how you relate to food and things like that. And the idea is you just read it to yourself for like six weeks and then it filters through and it is a way in which God will renew your mind and make us more like him. Yeah, so now I do have Romans 8 pop into my head and other <laughs> Bible verses. So like the other day I was just, I can't remember what was happening on the ward. It wasn't a good day, but from nowhere my brain was just going, you know, I've loved you with an everlasting love and just other encouraging Bible verses from Psalm 23 and things like that. So I can definitely, yeah, say that works, preaching myself for an day every day. <laughs> I have a vicar friend of mine who likes using the phrase, you need to marinate your brain in the Bible, uh, <laughs> which is a, a wonderful, horrific image. It <laughs> <But laughs> is, is, is quite helpful. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would add as well, like with this sort of memorization challenge I do with my friend, it's exactly the same where you're in the most kind of bizarre situations, all the most stressful situations, and you suddenly get the best kind of verse pop into your head and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm so glad for the Bible in this moment, you know. And I was recently rereading Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, which is quite a practical way to respond to different decisions. I think the thing I particularly loved reading at this time was that kind of reminder that our God is not someone who, you know, has given us a to-do list of how to do life, that he's a God who wants to grow us to be more like him. And so he wants to give us the wisdom to make choices like he would make choices and just be transforming us to kind of love what he loves and, you know, hate what he hates. And yeah, I find that quite exciting, just a better picture of how we can be doing life and one that involves carrying less weight. <laughs> yeah. To come back to something you were saying earlier, Sally, I think you kind of briefly touched on, I guess, what messages we're taking away from media. I think I found quite helpful from the Faith for Exiles book is that they've suggested, you know, where possible, just kind of having a, a way of kind of thinking about what you're watching or reading. And I've definitely enjoyed trying that. So their kind of structure was, you know, when you're watching something, thinking like, is God portrayed in this, in this film at all? And if he is, how is he portrayed? What are the main claims of the film? What do they say about things like masculinity, femininity? what do the characters put their hope in and what saves people in the film and firstly it's quite fun to do that <laughs> to do that it's another way of just kind of enjoying a film but um it has been really interesting particularly over christmas i guess because we watch so i watch so much tv at christmas being able to think about things in a different light like for example you're we watching the second Enola Holmes film so it was following on from the first ones the first one was very like individual focused so it's all about you as an individual getting things done and she says the future is up to us and then there's this kind of character of her mum who's guiding her in the background who almost has kind of like a god-like role but they don't you know they don't mention god at all in the film and then they followed it up with the sequel where they've kind of said oh well, actually it's also all about community as well that's an important thing and yeah it's just interesting reflecting on films through a new light 
I think perhaps maybe even a better example is we watched the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. I don't know if either of you saw that film. I didn't, but I really wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend it. I, it's not necessarily the kind of thing I normally go for, but it was really interesting because I think underlying the whole film was this kind of undercurrent of what is what is the meaning of life. And it's a film that doesn't mention God at all. So it's kind of like a perspective of exploring what the purpose of life is when you have no absolute deity. And it's just interesting. I don't know. I find it interesting to ask myself these questions and then suddenly become slightly more aware of things that perhaps I was just bathing my brain in without actively kind of realizing it sorry Sally yeah. go for it no I was just gonna say I completely agree with you I think it's a really interesting exercise to do I think that can be the challenge can it is to like apply your brain in those situations especially when we're busy and tired mm. from work but then by doing that, you've not only critically appraised it from a faith worldview yourself and been able to think more about the character of God through engaging with something secular, but it, it's also then an evangelical opportunity because as Ben said earlier, from what we've watched on TV last night to like massive medical ethics in the news, it is the stuff of staff rooms <laughs> and it yeah. is what people chat about all the time. And even um, again, like this is quite a trivial example, but like watching the Harry and Meghan docuseries, it was helpful to do that because it meant that I was then part of these conversations and even mm. though the Harry and Meghan series wasn't about God and it wasn't a faith program it wasn't like the chosen you know it was nothing mm. like that at all I watched it and I was kind of thinking quite critically as I as I watched it I suppose and therefore entering in these conversations at work you know it's a small example but that's how the bridges are formed isn't it it's mm. like how do I view this as a Christian mm. about meaning and purpose and duty versus maybe some of my other colleagues and that's so interesting to hear how we all see this particular issue differently and for the reasons why and then that's something I guess you can kind of scale bigger and smaller as you need to the challenge is doing it intentionally as I say yeah. not just opening Netflix and clicking play because it's a Thursday night and you don't want to go to work tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> I mean I would go even further I mean I agree I think it's interesting to think theologically about films and yes this is the stuff of staff rooms but I would go even further than that this is the stuff that makes culture it's stories and the entertainment industry has been hugely influential in the direction of Western culture. And I think it's really important if we're going to think about our culture and where it's going, that we understand films and we understand the entertainment industry. And I think this is especially true to ministry to young people. So I've got youth worker friends who are very strict that every year they will watch all of the big Disney films and Pixar films and kids films so they know and understand what is being fed into the young people's brains. I mean, I watch those because I quite enjoy Pixar and Disney, but <laughs> I, I, as, a, as a happy bonus, um, I, I get to watch what the kids are watching. And the entertainment industry has remarkable power to shape and change minds, hearts and lives. Mm. And, and this is what uh, Glenn Harrison writes in, in Better Story is the entertainment industry really know how to use a story to trump any kind of argument. Um, so one example, I watched Avengers Endgame on the, its opening weekend. It, was, it became the highest grossing film of all time. I think beaten by Avatar 2 now, but it became, you know, it was it was the biggest grossing film at the time. I went to the um, packed out cinema on its opening weekend and we were watching the film and I'm about to give a plot spoiler, so uh, apologies if you haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> but there's this moment where Captain America and Iron Man and Thor just lie seemingly defeated at the hands of Thanos. And then in this moment of seemingly impossible, kind of inevitable defeat, Mj 
Mjolnir, uh, Thor's hammer, rises up and flies into the hand of Captain America. And it was the first time that any other character other than Thor had been deemed worthy to wield the weapon. <laughs> and at that moment, when I was watching it in the cinema, something bizarre happened that I've never experienced before or since. And that was the entire cinema audience erupted in applause spontaneously. And of course, I couldn't help but join in. But why were we applauding? Because th- this wasn't a live show. The musicians couldn't hear us. The, the actors couldn't hear us. What were we applauding other than a screen? Well, the answer was we were applauding the story. We'd been so invested in the fates of these characters that when we saw the, the first glimpses of them clutching victory out of the jaws of defeat, we couldn't help but erupt into spontaneous applause. And that's just a small example of how stories can really capture our minds and turn our hearts to a particular direction. And then if you take a more political example, Ben Harrison writes about this 100 second video that made the rounds on YouTube just before the legalization of gay marriage in the UK. And the video is of this airplane touching down. And then out of the airplane marches these uh, soldiers. It was a plane with soldiers from Afghanistan returning home. And uh, all these soldiers come and they get hugged by their waiting uh, wives and girlfriends. But there's this one who is kind of left looking around, desperately looking around the crowd until he spots another man. And then they run in slow motion together and then he gets down on one knee and uh, whips out a ring. And then the video ends with words, uh, something along the lines of all men can be heroes, end marriage inequality. This was a 100 second silent film and yet you can see it's power and many hearts were won. Again, another really powerful example of the power of stories in changing hearts and minds and then changing culture in the process. And so I think there is a real need for us as Christians to engage with films, to engage with entertainment, because it's interesting, because it's the stuff of coffee rooms, but also because this is where culture is formed. I personally think that the people that dictate where culture goes are not the politicians and policymakers. It's not the scientists and the rational thinkers. It's not It's not the philosophers. It's the storytellers. Mm-hmm. It's those in the entertainment industry who know how to tell stories. And so we need to be able to listen to those stories. And we also need to be able to tell our own. And that one I will defer to Glenn Harrison's better story to. to, to <laughs> I guess that's just such an encouragement thinking of just how we we are followers of Jesus, that, you know, the greatest storyteller and just how so much of his teaching was through stories. Just sorry, on that point, but yeah, I, Jesus was the greatest storyteller who's ever lived, I believe, like in, in the Gospel of Luke. Do you know how many parables there are in the Gospel of Luke? Oh, this is testing like Sunday school knowledge. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> oh, it's just the bit, the bit where, actually, no, never mind. <laughs> so there, I'm not going to embarrass myself too much on Spotify. <laughs> uh, there are 24 parables uh, in the Gospel of Luke, from what I remember, and there are 24 chapters in the Gospel of mm-hmm. Luke. Jesus told so many stories, um, and I think we, we follow in his footsteps and we stand on his shoulders in this. If we can get how to tell gospel stories. Thank you so much, Sally and Ben. I think we've probably come into the end of our programme today. So I'll put the links to the books we've discussed and the podcast blurb, including details of your book, Ben, as well, so that people can find that. I'm looking forward to the next episode where we're going to be looking at the question, what's the antidote to isolation? If you've enjoyed listening to us, please subscribe. And if you could just leave a review, that also helps other people to find this podcast. Bye for now. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.